One time early in my life when I first got interested in the Bible at all, uh, I went to a meeting and uh, somebody said, turn in your Bible to the book of Hezekiah, chapter 18. I spent about five minutes trying to find the book of Hezekiah. Well, there's not a book of Hezekiah, but there are a whole lot of passages written about Hezekiah, primarily in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. Uh, more was written about him than any other king in the divided kingdom, in either Judah or Israel. So I'm wondering this morning if you out there ever feel like you're swimming against the current in life. If sometimes you feel like if you just give it all you've got, you might gain a little bit. But then if you relax, the current just sweeps you right back where you were. You ever feel like that? Well, life can be like that. Trying to live the Christian life in a culture that constantly pulls us back and tries to conform us to the ways of the world. And what can happen is we get tired, we get discouraged. After all, true committed Christians are in a minority now. We got the odds against us. We battle sin, injustice in the world, adverse work situations maybe, an adverse political climate, and even creeping secularism in the church itself. And in the face of all of this, we are commanded not just to maintain, but to move forward. Our commander-in-chief has issued the challenge, charge. Is that really possible in a climate like we've got today? Well, I want to take a look this morning at the story of a man who tried to do what was right against unbelievable odds, a man who truly swam against the current. That man was King Hezekiah. Now, I mentioned there's so many passages about him. We're not going to look at all of them, but I do want to begin by reading a short passage here that kind of summarizes Hezekiah. It's in 2 Kings chapter 18. If you want to look there, 2 Kings chapter 18. And... Uh, it's our custom here to stand for the reading of the Word of God. So if you would do that, please. Second Kings chapter 18. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother name, mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, because until that, those days the sons of Israel had begun to burn incense to this bronze serpent. They had made an idol out of it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him, 
among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Wow. What a statement. Wouldn't you like to have all that said about you? Why would God say all this about Hezekiah? Well, to understand why, I think it will help if we have a little history. The climate that you can have a seat. <laughs> the climate that existed when Hezekiah became king goes back to the events that took place after the death of Solomon. The last king of the United Kingdom was Solomon. He was the last king to reign over the whole place. In the last days of his reign, he was considered to be a good king, but in the last days of his reign, his moral character was breaking down. And as a result of that, his leadership weakened and there was unrest in the kingdom. Life was hard for the average man in the kingdom of that day. Most of them were, had to work like slaves. They either were slaves or they had to work like slaves anyway. And there was a young man in the kingdom named Jeroboam. And he began to rebel against the king. And he began to gather a big following. Now, king Solomon knew about this, and he actually tried to have him killed. But Jeroboam escaped and fled to Egypt. So he stayed there until Solomon died. After Solomon's death, his son, Rehoboam, ascended to the throne. When Jeroboam heard about this, he returned to Israel with a big bunch of his entourage there, and he got an audience with King Rehoboam in behalf of his followers. So he went to the king, and he tried to negotiate some reasonable terms with the king. He said, basically, your father was too hard on us. If you'll lighten our loads... We'll serve you for life. And King Rehoboam told him to come back in three days and he'd give him an answer. Well, during those three days, he consulted with two different groups of people. He consulted with his elders. And he also consulted with his young friends who basically always tended to say whatever it was he wanted to hear. His elders advised him to be kind to these people. Uh, speak kindly to them and lighten up their load and they'll serve you. But the young men advised him to do the opposite. They advised him to say, you think my dad was hard? Are you kidding me? I'll be twice as hard on you as he was. I'll discipline you even more harshly than he ever did. So he took the advice of the young men and Jeroboam said, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm out of here. And he cut out north and took his whole following with him, and many other people began to follow at that time. Ten out of the 12 tribes of Israel left that day and followed Jeroboam. That's how the kingdom split. Thus, the kingdom was split apart into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And the capital of Judah 
was the walled city of Jerusalem. You can read about all of this in the First Kings chapter 12 because it's a great study. It would be a great sermon in itself. Verse 19 of that passage says that Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David until this day. Now, just as a side note, if you're looking at that passage, what struck me is that we have political leaders today who could learn a great lesson from this passage and listen to older, cooler heads rather than young, hot-headed radicals. But that's not what the message is about today. That's, you get that free. And that's how the kingdom split. A small decision that had staggering consequences. Every choice that we make has real and lasting consequences, especially if you're in any kind of leadership position. After the split, each of these two kingdoms had a succession of kings, one after the other. In the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, every single king was a bad one. None of them were good. And as a result of that, eventually the kingdom was absorbed. It was conquered, the people were deported, and the whole kingdom pretty much ceased to exist as a nation. Well, down south in the kingdom of Judah, some of the kings were good and some of them were bad. But even in Judah, the ones that were bad were really, really bad. And without doubt, the worst of the worst was a king named Ahaz. He became king when he was 20 years old and he was rotten to the core. He began his reign by reinstating the abominable practices of all the kingdoms that had been conquered whom the Lord had driven out before the Israelites and he commanded them to have nothing to do with these people. Some of their practices included idol worship, human sacrifices to false gods, the desecration of the temple and temple prostitution. At this time, all of these things were put into place and supported by King Ahaz. At this time, the temple itself was filled with gold, and it was so beautiful that people had been known to drop to their knees once they saw it because it was awesome. But Ahaz didn't have that same response. Ahaz looked at it, at all that gold, and he saw dollar signs. He stripped the temple, and he either sold the gold or he offered it as a tribute to other evil kings. He established altars to many different gods and he nailed the doors of the temple shut and during his reign it sat there stripped and vacant the holy place of the Lord what a tragedy well <clears throat> this was the environment and the culture into which a boy named Hezekiah was born and in which he grew up to manhood can you imagine that this was what he knew this was all around him it would be hard to imagine a more evil environment for a young man to grow up in. Well, when Ahaz died, Hezekiah became king. 
He was 25 years old when he became king. And the, the Bible is, as you know this, the Bible is famous for summarizing things in short, pithy statements. 2 Kings 18.5 says, He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He did right in the sight of the Lord. What a short statement that encompasses an entire life of worship and service to the Lord. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah took over leadership of an unbelievably evil kingdom. All that the Lord had warned him about was rampant in the land at that time. In Exodus 34, you can read a warning that was given to the people through Moses. Moses said, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, the Jebusite. I am not going to say the termite. Watch yourself. This is his warning. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and sacrifice to their gods, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no other gods. Well, all of these things that he warned them against were rampant in the land into which Hezekiah stepped as a young king. What would you expect him to do in that circumstance? Well, the normal thing for him to do, seems, would be to follow in the footsteps of his father, Ahaz. After all, Ahaz was wealthy. And uh, why rock the boat, you know? But Hezekiah believed that the chain of evil could be broken. He wasn't blind to it. He could see what was going on. He could see the evil all around him. And he knew that the people were accustomed to it, were used to it. But you know what else he knew? Hezekiah knew the commandments and the promises of God. And he trusted them. The Lord had also spoken to Joshua when they first came into the land. And he said, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left. And then you'll have success wherever you go. God, through his prophets, had reinforced these commands over and over and over right up till the day of Hezekiah. All of the previous kings, including his father, also knew these commands and promises, but they chose to ignore them. But Hezekiah claimed them as his own. And so, armed with nothing but the word of the Lord, which the New Testament calls the sword of the Spirit, Hezekiah stepped into the leadership in the most evil time that the nation had ever faced. And in sharp and dramatic contrast with his father, he followed God more closely and sincerely than any other king of Israel or Judah. 
Militarily, he defeated the hated Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories. And spiritually, he began to cleanse the land of idols. And he didn't do this gradually. He made a big splash right from the start. He began immediately to tear down the altars to the false gods. Many of, many of these altars, by the way, were built by his father. And he tore them all to pieces. He removed what the Bible calls the high places, which were altars for worship of false gods were built on a hill or somewhere where they could be easily seen. Basically, he went through the land and cleaned house. It's easy to see that at this time, the nation was absolutely steeped in idol worship. This was the sin that they'd been warned about ever since they entered the land. The people knew the commandments, the warnings, and the promises just as well as Hezekiah did. But sometimes they were inconvenient, and they were burdensome, and they chose to ignore them when they were. Not only were they condoning ungodliness and idolatry in public, but in their own hearts. But Hezekiah set out not to just know God's word, but to do it. And that, of course, points out why we study the Bible today, not to increase our knowledge, but to change our life. As a Bible church, which we are, we have to be cautious and careful that we don't fall into the same situation of studying the Bible just to learn more about the Bible. Hezekiah was a student, but he was also a student, by the way, of the Proverbs. In Proverbs 25.1, his name is mentioned. That tells us that he transcribed and assembled many of the Proverbs of Solomon, that we might not have them today available to us were it not for Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah had a big assembly. He called in all the priests and the Levites, and he reminded them of God's charge to them, and he also said, you failed. You're not, you've not done what God charged you to do. And he gave them instructions. Among those instructions, he told them to reopen the temple and restore it and to spiritually cleanse it. And he replaced all the gold that his father had stripped from the temple. And he sent couriers all around the land in uh, Judah and many even up into Israel to preach and to inform the people of a new day. Many of these couriers and their messages were ignored or ridiculed, but some people repented and began to head towards Jerusalem. Hezekiah was an instrument of good in the land of Judah. God was honoring his promises, and you know what was happening? Revival was breaking out all over the land of Judah. The Bible says that the priests and the Levites were ashamed of themselves. Can you imagine that? When leaders begin to repent, a nation will experience the blessings of God. Revival was breaking out all over the land, which tells us that we need to be in prayer for our leaders that they would repent and turn to God. Well, a big deal happened. The people did something that they had not done in years. 
they celebrated the Passover. And there had never been a Passover like that since the days of Solomon. There had not been such a Passover at all. People came from all over the land. There was feasting, there was music, there was praying and celebrating the goodness of God. The Passover lasted seven days, and then the people didn't want it to be over. So they extended it another seven days. And from that day forward, Judah celebrated all the feast days ordained by Moses, including the Passover. The overall mood of the entire land was joy. They began to worship the God of gods, and uh, they were filled with joy. And Hezekiah reconstructed the temple, and they spiritually cleansed the temple and rededicated it. Now, geographically, Israel and Judah were sandwiched between two world powers, Egypt in the south and Assyria on the north. And Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, lived his entire life in fear of the nations around him. And he had been paying tribute to Assyria for years. Well, Hezekiah believed that God's people were sovereign and were not subservient to anybody. And so, acting with great courage, he stopped paying tribute to the Assyrians, a nation that had been blackmailing them for years. Well, naturally, this didn't set too well with the Assyrians. He hit them in their pocketbook. And at the same time that a true spiritual revival was sweeping across the land of Judah, the Assyrians began marshalling their forces to attack. Assyria had already conquered and deported most of the cities of Israel. Israel was devastated. So after they built their army up, the Assyrian king, who was named Sennacherib, began to move his armies down the coast and attacked all the fortified cities of Judah except Jerusalem and captured the people. His military strategy was to surround Jerusalem and cut them off from any help from any of the other smaller towns around. He set up his headquarters in a town called Lachish, a well-fortified city near the Philistine border, in preparation for a long siege of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah actually didn't know what to do. He didn't want to fight them for obvious reasons. He was totally outnumbered, and he knew they'd be wiped out. Judah was now at about one-third of her former strength due to the inroads that Sennacherib's army had already made. So Hezekiah, Hezekiah attempted to appease Sennacherib by offering him a, a, a ransom. He asked him what he, what he wanted, and this is interesting, Sennacherib told him, I want X number of talents of gold and X number of talents of silver. So Hezekiah came up with that tax by stripping some of the gold out of the temple, which he had just replaced, and also robbing the temple treasury. So he puts all this treasure together and he pays it to Sennacherib as a ransom. You know what happened. 
Sennacherib took the money and continued to siege Jerusalem. It had no effect whatsoever. You can't negotiate with terrorists. So the ransom was not enough. Sennacherib sent messengers along with a sizable army to Jerusalem to demand complete surrender. And he began a misinformation campaign. This is interesting. Here we have the very first example of fake news. He spoke very loudly to the people so that they could hear it on the wall, and he tried to undermine their confidence in Hezekiah's leadership. He told them, none of the gods of these other cities have been able to resist me. I am too powerful, and your God won't be able to resist me either. And he said, it's your God that your king Hezekiah has insulted by destroying his altars. You see the little twist there? Hezekiah did destroy the altars, but they weren't altars to the, the real God. They were altars to idols made out of wood and stone that can't do anything. You know, I want to say, if you're supposed to do something, it helps a whole lot if you exist. And they didn't. <laughs> but that was their take to the people. That's what they told the people. And further, they promised them, the people, good food, peace, and a good place to live if they'd just surrender and come over to him. Hezekiah had told them not to answer the Sennacherib. And they didn't. They just brought word back to him. And when Hezekiah heard the report, he put on sackcloth and he went into the temple to pray. And his very first response was always to pray. That's what he did. That was his lifestyle. He also sent to the prophet Isaiah for counsel. And Isaiah gave him encouragement. And he, he remained firm in resistance to Sennacherib. So Sennacherib then sent a written message to Hezekiah, which basically said all the same things. He said, you cannot possibly resist me. Nobody else has been able to, and you can't either. And your God will be no different from the gods of all of these other cities that I've already conquered. Well, Hezekiah went back into the temple, and he took this message that King Sennacherib had sent him, and he spread it out before the Lord in the temple. And he petitioned God in behalf of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. This petition of Hezekiah, a lot of Bible scholars have called it one of the finest prayers in all of Scripture. You can read the whole thing in its entirety in 2 Kings chapter 19. It's a great prayer. But in this prayer, he acknowledged that God alone was the real ruler of Judah and was sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and that these defeated gods that he has talked about so much were nothing more than wood and stone. And he appealed to the living God to deliver his people. And Hezekiah believed that God could do this. It was truly a prayer of faith. The objective of this petition was God's glory, not just his own survival. In this prayer, he reminds God that his reputation was at stake. 
He asked God to vindicate himself and to demonstrate that he was not just some impotent idol so that the whole world would acknowledge him. And God obviously liked that prayer. He was obviously pleased with it. He answered to the prophet Isaiah that because Sennacherib had raised his insulting voice in blasphemy and pride, not just against the city of Jerusalem, but against her God, the Holy One, that he would answer for it. God would defend Jerusalem and save it. And that night, the angel of the Lord destroyed most of the army of Sennacherib. I, I don't know how he did that. The Bible doesn't tell us. But suffice it to say that Sennacherib didn't have anything left to attack Jerusalem with. One of the versions of Scripture says that the angel of the Lord executed 185,000 Assyrians. So Sennacherib, what else could he do? He tucked his tail between his legs and he fled back home to Nineveh. And sometime later, he was in his own temple worshiping his false god, and two of his sons killed him, assassinated him in his temple. That's what happened to Sennacherib, the guy who thought he was bigger than God. Well, to add to Hezekiah's problems, during this siege, he became sick. And Isaiah was sent by God to tell him, that he wasn't going to live much longer, that he was going to die. Hezekiah responded, as he usually did, to this bad news by going into the temple and praying earnestly to God. He wept bitterly, and he reminded God of his faithfulness and his wholehearted devotion. And God answered it by granting Hezekiah 15 more years of life. And as a sign that this would happen, God reversed the progress of a shadow on the staircase. Now, much has been made of this sign, but it's not necessary to insist that God reversed the rotation of the earth and affected time for the entire world. It, the Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible simply says that the shadow moved. So we'll just leave it there. The shadow moved. God's word came true and Hezekiah lived 15 more years. Probably the most significant physical accomplishment of Hezekiah was the building of a tunnel from the Gihon Spring where they got most of their water, which was outside the walls of Jerusalem. He built a tunnel from that spring under the wall and emptied into a reservoir inside the city, which they later named the Pool of Siloam. And then he covered up the spring outside so that the Assyrian invaders would not discover it. He had already stopped up most of the springs in the country so that the Assyrians wouldn't have free, fresh water. But this tunnel was a remarkable engineering feat, which can still be seen today if you go there. Well, Hezekiah's accomplishments, his spiritual leadership of the nation, were all significant. They were significant in their own right. But... I personally think that the greatest reason that God chose to lift him up in Scripture 
is the fact that the odds were stacked so heavily against him. He fought against the odds with little support except from God himself. Hezekiah was truly a man of faith and a man who swam against the current of his surroundings. He was certainly not a perfect man. He made several significant mistakes, but he was always a man of faith who looked beyond his heritage and his present environment, and he chose to believe God rather than his circumstances. Well, so what? <laughs> Why should we care what some king who lived a long time ago thought or did? Well, the New Testament speaks to this. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, including the Old Testament, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that's why we need to pay attention to it. Romans 15.4 is a little more succinct in their description. That verse says, whatever was written in earlier times, like the story of Hezekiah, was written for our instruction. So what can we learn from the life of Hezekiah? I don't know what you can learn from it. The thing you need to do is read it and let God speak to you and see what he can tell you. I can tell you a couple things that I got out of it when I was studying it. The first thing I would say is you can do it. You can do it, and I can do it. You and I can do right in the sight of God, even in the face of adversity. Whatever adversity we've got is not likely to be as bad as that which Hezekiah faced. If Hezekiah can do it, you can do it, and I can do it. You cannot say, and I cannot say, it's not possible in my case. My situation is so bad, I can't live the Christian life in this situation. We can't say that. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need to live the Christian life, no matter our circumstances. You and God are a majority. You can swim against the current. Another thing I observed is we can see that Hezekiah's life was based entirely on the promises and the commands of God, especially his prayer life. He was able to look right through his circumstances, his bad circumstances, and see what God said and then walk with God. Now, I would say that it is not only likely, it is almost a certainty that we may be called to live the Christian life in even more adverse circumstances than we have today. Things are spiritually don't look like they're going to get better. They look like they're probably going to get worse. But Hezekiah did it. It's not likely that our circumstances will ever get any worse than his were. Hezekiah did it, and we can do it. We can swim against the current. <clears throat> Consider this analogy. Just imagine 
that you're standing on the bank of a river, and that river is running at flood stage, very swift. And you need to go upstream, but you don't think you could make it. You know you can't swim against that kind of a current. But while you're standing there thinking about this, Jesus Christ himself walks right by you and plunges into the water. And he begins to swim effortlessly upstream against the current. And he looks back and he looks in your eyes and he says, come on. So you plunge in. And to your surprise, as long as you stay right behind him in his wake, you can swim just like Michael Phelps. But if you deviate and leave his wake, the current pulls you right back downstream. And you recall the words that God spoke to Joshua. Turn neither to the right nor to the left, but stay right behind the Lord. Stay in his wake, and you and I can swim against the current. Let's pray. Lord, we do anticipate that we may have a current to swim against that's even worse than it is today. But Father, we pray that as we look to this life of your servant Hezekiah, that we would be able to stay in your wake and to swim against the current and to be your people in the face of all of this adversity. Bless us this day, and to your glory, Lord. Amen.